Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you here. Welcome to our final event of our One Book, One College program on the book Miss Marvel. Uh, so this book is a comic book, and it's about uh, superheroes. And so we thought, you know, this is a good opportunity to talk about heroes and mythology and this structure of what it means, especially, to, you know, we're in the midst of the end of Game of Thrones. Avengers Endgame is imminent, like it's on the way. So we are all around us, our hero stories, and there's a whole tradition of studying heroes and myths um, that's super fun and really exciting. So I'm, I'm very grateful for our faculty members who are here today to help us think about this. Uh, so my name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. I'm going to be moderating um, the talk today, trying to get uh, the good conversation going. And I'll let each of our panel members do a quick intro of themselves, if you would. Okay, uh, my name is Amani Wazwaz, and I teach uh, composition and literature here at Moraine Valley. I'm also the coordinator for speech and foreign languages. Hi, I'm Kelly Ruby. I'm a humanities teacher here. I teach Hume 101, 102, women's, uh, women in humanities, and I also teach art history. Hi, I'm Randy Connor. I teach uh, various humanities courses including African and Middle East, uh, women in humanities, Native American humanities, and others. And in the fall, I will begin teaching a class that's just been accepted by the state in LGBTQ humanities. Excellent. Thank you all for being here. So let me just set us up, and then we'll dive into some questions. The phrase hero's journey is most often associated with the scholar Joseph Campbell. And I have three of his books that I pulled from our collection here. Um, he spent his career exploring myths and stories from around the world and noted that they often have a similar structure. Uh, his most famous book is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is right here. Um, he defines a hero as someone who has done or achieved something outside the normal realm of human experience. A hero is someone who has given his or her life to something bigger than itself. Heroes define themselves through their actions, often through physical acts, such as in conflicts or through self-sacrifice, but they also can be spiritual. Uh, finding a new truth to bring back to the community that you are a part of. Campbell noted that rites of passage where young people enter the rites as, as a child and follow an initiation ceremony and leave the ceremony as an adult often follow that kind of hero trajectory. Um, there's an archetype in this myth um, from ancient mythologies around the world that followed this path of the hero that I hope we're going to dive into today. Um, so for Campbell, the stories of heroes help place us in our universe, helps us think about our own lives, help us think about the things that we have out there um, to achieve. So I thought, you know, to get us going, maybe to the, the first place we should start with our panel members is just to ask each of you to maybe give us some examples of hero stories or favorite stories that you have, and maybe talk a little bit about why they're examples of hero stories. Okay. All right, you want me to begin, Whoever and I'll begin. Um, <laughs> examples of hero stories pretty much everything. All stories are hero stories, but if you want me to be like very, very specific, uh, there is uh, a Middle Eastern and Arabic story, Layla and Majnun. It's a love story, and that is, to my mind, very heroic because it's the quest to find the impossible, which is love or the beloved, I love a lot of stories connected with Arabian Nights or A Thousand Days and Night. Uh, American literature, particularly early American literature, is a quest to define 
the American identity, and that I find to be very fascinating as well, too. Uh, in American literature, I gravitate towards Herman Melville's uh, Ethan Brand, which is a quest for knowledge. Stories, mythic stories and regular stories that deal with the quest uh, for human knowledge have a very special place in my heart. Ethan Brand is one of them, the story of Adam and Eve is another one, and uh, the story of Prometheus is something that I hold very dear to my heart. Well, those are very good. <laughs> okay. So in our humanities classes, we usually talk about the hero and the myth with some of the classic myths with uh, Perseus and Theseus. Um, I usually talk about Perseus and I show my students something like the Percy Jackson um, movies and books, you know, to kind of bring it into some pop culture. Uh, there we talk about the Hercules story and kind of the way that these stories permeate into things that we would recognize today. Um, honestly, a Harry Potter is probably my favorite hero. <laughs> I don't know how academic that is. Uh, but I, I, I've always loved the books, and now I have three children who are at that kind of reading age, so I'm enjoying kind of reading it through their level, but then knowing that there are so many other elements to it that as they get older, we can talk about as well. Okay. Um, I am thinking of two heroes or heroines that I deal with in my world mythology classes. One of them is Boudicca. Boudicca was the queen of the Celts. Uh, and it brings up the issue of do heroes always succeed? Uh, she ultimately failed. She lost her battle to the Romans. She was the last great Celtic warrior who fought against uh, Roman invasion of Ireland. Um, she worshiped a goddess named Andraste, who was a warrior goddess. Um, but still, she's seen as a hero by many uh, Irish people and others. Um, I also um, thought of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is someone we speak about in my um, myth class as well as in Africa and the Middle East humanities. Gilgamesh is what I consider to be a compromised hero um, in the sense that um, I admire his uh, bromance, you could call it, with Enkidu. They were both fellow warriors. He was also a king, and he actually lived. But I don't admire the fact that they killed the guardian of the forest during the, their journey, and moreover, uh, so insult the goddess Ishtar that she condemns Enkidu to death. Um, Beyond that, most of my heroes are social or political activists, I noticed, um, either fictional or non-fictional. Uh, Nat Turner, who led a slave rebellion. Uh, Joe Hill, who uh, fought for workers' rights. Uh, Emma Goldsman and John Reed and Louise Bryant. And two heroes of mine from Chicago, uh, from the Haymarket riot. Uh, Albert and Lucy Parsons, both of whom are buried, as is Emma Goldman, in North Chicago. Um, fictional heroes, quickly. Um, I am uh, a, a fan of Seeley in The Color Purple, um, who, who uh, survives. And surviving can be a kind of heroism, depending on how oppressed one is. 
I also admire very intensely Maeve Millay, played by Tandy Newton in Westworld, uh, who fights against oppressive humans uh, who um, are trying to enslave uh, robots who possess consciousness. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think the point that um, the, like a hero story doesn't have to be um, fictional, maybe is something that we can come back to at the end. I think that's a, a really uh, great connection to the ways we tell history and the ways we think about history, uh, for sure. So, so you know, in these examples, um, could you talk either in these examples or other examples, like how are these heroes made? Like what does that template look like? And maybe what are some varieties or flavors that we might see? So where do they come from? Are they born? What does it mean, that process? Well, I know if we're talking about it through the lens of, of Campbell, then it's a 12-step process to become a hero with mm -hmm. several steps, you know, beginning with the call to adventure. It's kind of formulaic if you're thinking of it along those terms. Uh, and you can take, uh, in, in our class, you know, I'll use something like Harry Potter or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, although some of those are, not everyone knows Lord of the Rings anymore. But I'll, I'll take those examples and I'll say, using epics or heroes in pop culture that we recognize, how do we see these, these 12 steps, or e not necessarily all 12. But you know, you start to recognize things like, the, the we'll talk about this later, I know, but the role of a mentor appears in all of them. There's an ordeal that everyone goes through. There's a challenge presented to them. There's a return back home after that. So each film, if you're using those films, they, they do tend to kind of follow the same path or formula that's recognizable to a reader or to a viewer, but the story, you know, follows a different plot point for each film. So whether you're talking about Harry Potter or Frodo, the way that they approach the call or the way that they approach the adventure and then how they handle the challenges that are thrown in their way can kind of make it deviate from film to film. Sometimes what you have, just to add on to what uh, Kelly was saying, you have like the most unlikely hero becoming very heroic. And we see that in uh, Miss Marvel itself because the young woman, the teenager, has rather, rather questions her identity. And she holds this ideal of this blonde American, uh, blue-eyed, as the person who is popular as the person who she needs to become. So in response to like, are they born? Um, they're born with a great sense of humanity and a great sense of frailty to them. And their heroic journey is to wake them up and to wake them up at times to the fact that they're good as they are. They don't have to be blonde. They don't have to be blue eyed if they are born a specific way. So. Yes, they do go through uh, Joseph Campbell's process, and we do see that in Miss Marvel itself. You know, uh, Kamala, the main heroine, is called into action, and she does go through the different process of becoming a hero. But in the process, she is woken up to the reality of her very own goodness, which is in her heart and soul. So mostly what you get is a person, a human being who is struggling, who has a lot of a lot of doubts. I've brought here with me just like a little bit of, of literature. Like I think of 
of Janie, African-American literature from uh, their eyes were watching God. And Janie started out, you know, she lived with her grandmother and her grandmother wanted to put her down and her grandmother had these ideas about marriage that were not fulfilling to Janie's heart and soul. So, and when Janie would look, one time when she looked at a photograph, she did not recognize herself because of her skin tone. So her journey takes her on the path to define for her own true self what true marriage means and what her identity as an African-American woman truly means. I was just gonna say one other thing while you're thinking too. Something that strikes me with all of the stories that we're all talking about is that everybody starts as the underdog in a lot of these tales, you know, and and again, maybe it's, I'm sorry, I mention my children a lot, but because I'm always That's thinking good, about yeah. things through <laughs> through their lens, you know, you think Harry Potter lives under the stairs, you know, you right. think Frodo is the hobbit. You know, there, there's some challenge that presents to them initially, even before the actual challenge and ordeal within the 12-step process. Right. They have to overcome something right from the very beginning in order to then start on this path right. of the 12 steps. What? So a couple weeks ago, you know, we had um, the author of Miss Marvel, G. Willow Wilson, on campus. And one thing that she talked about, we didn't really talk about the hero's journey specifically, but she talked about the kind of characters you would see in comic books. And she made a contrast, you know, kind of like where heroes start. So like um, Kamala for Miss Marvel or um, like Peter Parker and Spider-Man or Harry Potter are these kind of every everyday kind of people uh, who start very basic and then discover that they have this, this um, calling to be a hero. And then she contrasted that with someone like Batman, who's like the super rich guy that's got everything that he's going to want, but then his tragedy is that he loses the thing that's most important to him, right, his parents, and then he's always carrying that burden with him and having to overcome. So, like, I, it seems to me like there maybe is a, a discussion about, like, you know, what is the starting point that sends you on this jilly, the journey, the people that have everything, then lose it, and then have to come back, or the people that have nothing and discover, you know, that there's bigger things out there for them. Uh, one thing I would say is my my most important hero these days is June in The Handmaid's Tale. I feel like reality is becoming closer and closer daily to The Handmaid's Tale uh, with a president who is attempting to lead us into an authoritarian government um, which and a, and a vice president who thinks a lot like the characters in The Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. So for me, June is a very, very important hero for our time. She definitely starts out just as an ordinary woman, you know, very much a part of her culture, a very liberated culture, and so on. And she ends up being uh, absolutely victimized as a woman uh, by not only men, but patriarchal women. And I think that's really terrifying in my book. Um, also, um, I would say that um, there are, I believe that some heroes are destined to become heroes. I do believe in destiny, I suppose. I think you can change destiny, but I do believe that it exists. I think some people we assume just, you know, I don't know, responded to a certain event, um, you know, just willy-nilly become heroes. I do think some are destined. For example, and I'm going to use one real example, Jim Morrison was a rock star. 
He believed that he had lived other lives. He believed that he had lived once as a shaman. He believed that he had lived as uh, the poet Rimbaud, the French poet of the 19th century, and so on. And for a time, uh, he accepted his destiny. At the end of his life, though, he sort of rejected it. And when people reject their destinies, it usually ends tragically, as it did for him. Uh, there was an also one other person I'll mention who did live historically. She was a female-to-male shaman or a transgender uh, two-spirit shaman who lived in the 19th century. She was known as a great healer and a great magician and a great diviner. However, uh, she began drinking heavily and her life ended in a barroom brawl. It seems that at some point she also rejected her destiny. So I do think this is an important theme when we're talking about heroes. Thank you. Okay, well let's let's uh, transition a little bit more to talk about um, you know the qualities of the of the hero. So um, you know what makes a, hero, uh, a character from a story um, into a hero, and then you know what are those qualities that we often think about? And how might they be different? We've touched on some of these, but maybe we can just flush out a little bit more. So I think whether you're talking about fiction or in reality, you know, going with real figures historically, I, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday and I was writing down, they have larger than life attributes. So things that we would expect of the best, you know, bravery and courage and passion and selflessness, confidence, integrity, all the things that we would hold or hold as ideals of the very best in society. But it also struck me that some of the heroes that we talk about sometimes have larger-than-life flaws in addition to all the wonderful qualities. So uh, something that I see in a lot of the fiction examples, especially from the era that I teach in the, the classic age, classical age, you know, you're talking about excessive pride or arrogance or an ego or wanting to do it alone, not wanting to rely on help from others, sort of the, the hubris, right, quality. Uh, so it's, it's admirable on one hand, which perhaps is what starts the journey, this acceptance of the call for the bravery and the confidence and the integrity. But then because of the flaws, that's where some of the challenges and the ordeals come into play. Okay, uh, for <laughs> qualities, what qualities make a character a hero? Okay agree with what Kelly said and I just I want to add an example like uh, from the story of Leila and Majnun to go back uh, to Arabic and Middle Eastern and Muslim literature what you have is um, a character and he falls in love he falls in love so deeply that this call for him to love another with all his heart and soul transforms him he w had a name before Majnun. Majnun means er uh, crazy in Arabic. He had a name, and his name was Qais. But because of his destiny to love Layla, to love another human being so deeply, it changed his identity tremendously. Everything about him became focused on Layla and on love. This is all that he thought of. This is all that he dreamt of. So much so that 
he changed and he stopped being a part of this world and wild animals would gravitate towards him. And his father tried to nudge him back into the world and tell him, well, you know, it's enough being depressed because he loved Layla, but they could not be together. They could not marry and he became very depressed. And his father tried to nudge him back into human existence and being happy and his father tried to tell him wake up but he had sunken in by then so much and so deeply and that it was impossible for him to actually come into reality now some people would say it's perfectly all right he is destined uh like you know randy would say he is destined for this pathway to be a very loving human being, to give completely of himself, for him to move towards the path of being with his beloved. Some scholars even argue Layla is not a human being. What he is actually, his, what he is thirsting for is a connection with God because all human beings have been cut off from their maker, from the divine being, and, and what makes him very heroic is he is actually very true. He symbolizes what all of us want, which is true love, which is a very beautiful spiritual, emotional connection with our beloved. Some scholars say that beloved is a flesh and blood human being like Layla. Some say Layla is God. She represents God. She represents the divine being. And so... Why not move towards it? Whereas a lot of human beings are supposed to uh, calm down. You did not get to be, you did not get to marry the person that you love. Calm down, seek somebody else. Majnun represents what is true and what is very pure in humanity, which is to forever seek love no matter what. I would just add, I, I agree with all that you all have said, I would just add that for me there are two very different kinds of heroes, and you reminded me of the other one. No, no not you don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> <I> remind <laughs> you. And that is, I do not <laughs> like heroes like the 1980s, not nowadays, but the 1980s version of Wonder Woman who basically dresses in a flag. There are heroes who are not Promethean in the least, they are not rebels in the least, but they police society and they make sure that you are conforming to the dominant values of the culture. There are other heroes that I admire more who are rebels, um, who rebel against tyranny, who rebel against patriarchy, who rebel against religious institutions that, let's say, um, you know, are against women's rights that uh, fight against LGBT rights and so on. So to me, it's really important that we think about, well, what kind of hero is this? Is this a hero who simply enforces the values of the dominant culture, or is this a hero who stands up against them? Yeah, good, good. Well, maybe that's a good segue to talk about the supreme ordeal, which is central. Um, to Joseph Campbell's, um, you know, construction of this hero's journey. So, um, can you tell us about what what the supreme ordeal is, or some examples, perhaps, and you know, what does it mean, and how does it play out in a lot of stories? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so just speaking of Campbell, I mean, this, the supreme ordeal is it's an essential stage in this 12-step cycle. Um, and the, the point of it is if you think about ordeal as a challenge, then something that's facing this, let's use the word character, if we think about it in fiction, um, it's a stage that is supposed to aid in the connection between the character and the audience. So think reader or think viewer if you're thinking of a film. So when you go through this ordeal, I'm trying to think of what would be the best example if you're thinking, again, of the examples I gave before with Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, The Lion King. <laughs> think yeah. of poor little Simba and all he has to go through. Now the ordeal is going to be this supreme obstacle that he or she, depending on your character, must overcome to arrive on the other side and ultimately then be reborn. Sometimes we mean that in a literal way in the stories and sometimes we mean it more metaphorically, but it's a massive challenge that every plot point and all of the action is culminating towards to bring you to the climax of the tale just from a definitional standpoint. Yeah, good. All right, I, uh, the supreme ordeal, I think of Prometheus, and I think of Prometheus taking, stealing the fire of knowledge from the gods and giving it to humans so that humans wake up and so that humans come into a consciousness that they did not have before so before humans were in the unconscious and now they have become conscious and so he's broken, he's broken all of the God's trust and he's given that knowledge and now they're all part of, all the regular humans have this consciousness and this knowledge and he is suffer, he is forced to suffer for it constantly on a daily basis as the eagle is ripping apart his liver day in and day out. That pain represents us and human existence. And, and the fact that since now we are conscious human beings, we should be even more conscious. Some of us are not as conscious as we should be. So he puts us into that stage of consciousness and in him be suffering the whole time. It represents our very own suffering. I think of Adam and Eve's supreme, you know, or, ordeal. Uh, in the biblical sense, Eve is tempted. She falls into temptation, leads Adam on as well into temptation. And they eat from the tree uh, of knowledge. And again, just like Prometheus, we wake up. We become part of the consciousness. And the Bible is very clear about it and very honest about it that we are to suffer because consciousness means the consciousness of suffering. Um, myths, sacred texts, stories tend to be very honest about the fact that there's really quite no overcoming this. That once we wake up, we actually should modify our waking up even more and become even more conscious. We cannot stay stuck in the unconscious for too long. In the Garden of Eden, the snake will come. We are bound to, we are forced to face reality. And we are almost forced to stay, if not necessarily in the supreme ordeal, at least in the ordeal itself. In the Quran, um, 
the story of Adam and Eve is a little bit different in that both Adam and Eve are tempted and both of them eat from the forbidden fruit at the same time. Both are punished, both of them are kicked out of the Garden of Eden and both of them immediately start praying for the well-being of their children, all of us, okay? Because now we are in the conscious, we're forever aware that we are suffering, we are in reality. I think what you're saying there is also important to mention that it's not necessarily thinking of the ordeal in the most literal sense of, well, I don't have a magical ring to rule them all. How can I relate to Frodo? Or I don't have to defeat Voldemort, right? It's, it's not the ordeal itself. I think it's the response to it that ends up, or, or maybe not even the response, but the approach to it is what makes it relatable then to the audience. We can relate to someone's hesitation. We can relate to someone's resentment. We can relate to the anger that all of the heroes feel about the ordeal and, and the challenge of trying to overcome that. That's what makes them inherently human and something that connects us to them. Because again, you may not have to go through that same type of obstacle, but you can understand the emotions connected with it. So you've been through something similar, something's facing you that feels the same, and therefore that hero is your hero. Well, it, I, I mean, I think, you know, Campbell always emphasized, you know, that we are the heroes of our own stories in some ways, right? And that's the value. And I was thinking, you know, of the audience of college students, like you are undergoing your or ordeal now, whatever your goal is. Your goal is not to be a student at Moraine Valley for your whole life, right? This is part of a challenge to move you somewhere on, whether it's to get another degree or to go out in the workforce. But in some ways, right, we all undergo those kind of ordeals. Um, that we have to overcome and find that, you know, inside of us that helps us carry through. So that's the, you know, some of the power of these stories. So did you want to add? You all have reminded me of some very literal ordeals, though. I closed my eyes and I thought of Sigourney Weaver in Alien. And, uh, you know, there you, she really is confronting monsters, right? And I think that's a very powerful ordeal. She is the only person who survives uh, on this spaceship. Um, and then I, I'm also thinking of Maleficent, uh, the great ordeal in the original cartoon of Sleeping Beauty is the prince fighting her as she transforms into a dragon. And that made me think of the newer Maleficent. And I think it's important to point out too that some heroes are actually reimagined villains. Uh, we now know what I always knew about Maleficent. <laughs> Uh, that she is not a villain, that she is the guardian of the forest, and so on. And we learn that about Elphaba in uh, the musical Wicked, and the book Wicked, that she is not who we thought she was. She is a woman, a being who has overcome incredible oppression simply because she's green, <laughs> you know? So I think, it's, I think that's important too. And I would say, I had written all kinds of things about ordeals of different folk, but, I, but mostly realistic ordeals, as you were pointing out. I think a lot of people have to overcome racism. Uh, that can be a tr terrible ordeal. Uh, a lot of people have to, come, have to overcome religious oppression uh, or you know, insults like those directed at Muslims uh, recently. We, uh, some people have to overcome physical abilities or disabilities. 
other people have to overcome the, the bullying that comes along with being an LGBT person and so on. So I think these ordeals, as you were saying, Kelly, I think we can relate to these monstrous ordeals by way of ordeals that we ourselves have had to overcome. Well, and that is another great segue into our discussions of monsters. So, you know, in great hero stories, so many of them have great uh, monsters. And this quote um, from Margaret, Margaret Atwood, um, heroes need monsters who establish their heroic credentials. You need something scary to overcome. So whether it's something like Grendel or the Joker or whomever, um, can we talk about, you know, maybe what are some of your favorite monsters and what makes them compelling and, and uh, how they challenge our heroes? I, I, my favorite monster is Medusa. Uh, I think she's a wonderful hero because I think we all know Medusa as the, you know, the woman with the snakes. And if you look directly at her, she turns you into stone. And on first take, she's such a one-dimensional villain. You know, she's just a villain, and there's no backstory to it. So I often ask my humanities students if they know the whole story to her tale, and you know that her condition, if you call it that, is really a punishment for love and for an affair that she had. And I think it gives her some context. So when I think of monsters in a traditional sense, you know, Campbell would say the monster is there so that your hero has a chance to prove him or herself, right? Something great to overcome so that you have a reason to believe in them. They've done the unthinkable that no other person in the story is able to accomplish. But I like to think of the monsters as the more interesting part of the tale lately. You know, I'd like that's where I think some of these spin-offs are coming from. You know, Maleficent isn't the monster now. What's her backstory? Or it's not just the hero's version anymore. We want to know more dimensions about that secondary character to make them perhaps more impressive to overcome, but also to flesh out their story a bit. Okay, so in, in speaking of monsters, uh, the monsters that I find very interesting in teaching composition and literature are us. Okay, everybody is a monster to themselves. Everybody to varying levels has a degree, unfortunately, of self-destruction. Every, everybody is denying something, refusing to face a certain aspect of reality that is often staring at them. And if we constantly refuse to accept that reality, the monster is going to come in closer and closer until we're whacked across the face and told to wake up. Enough is enough, you know, that we carry the seeds of our own destruction within us. And this is something that I find fascinating in nonfiction, in fiction. In movies as well, too, we are all Osiris in a certain way. Osiris was this uh, ancient Egyptian god, and he had been a great ruler. And he had a brother, and this brother, Seth, was not a good man whatsoever. And what did Osiris do? Accept that his brother was not a good man? No. He did what certain human beings do, which is, nah, he's all right. You know, it's okay. He just has his moods and everything. No, 
that is not true whatsoever. To deny reality is to be slapped across the face. And in this case, what did Seth do? He took his brother and he dismembered him left and right. It's metaphorical for us. When we refuse to accept the monster within us and outside of us, facing us, this is what's going to happen to us. So Seth takes his brother's body, dismembers him, and throws it all over the world. And But Osiris is a god, and his wife, the uh, Egyptian goddess Isis, is a goddess, the goddess of the underworld. So what does she do? She goes and she collects all of his body together and they um, she becomes pregnant with their son Horus and Horus has to write the, fa uh, the mistakes of his father. And so Horus is a falcon and falcons are known for their amazing sight. They are, they can see, they are aware and this is what our ancient ancestors wanted us to do, to be aware and to be conscious. And so what does the son do? The son goes and uh, fights his uncle, and the uncle pulls his eye out. So in other words, you're going to live in reality. You're going to have to fight the monster. And you, something is going to happen to you, and you are going to be shaken. Okay, this time around... Seth does not dismember um, Horus. He plucks his eye out, okay? And that's what's going to happen to all of us. We're going to become traumatized when we face evil and we fight it within ourselves or in other people or in situations. Horus takes uh, his plucked out eye, goes and gives it to his father, Osiris, and both of them join together um, and they bring culture back and this is what Osiris represents. Osiris represents the old culture, the good culture that's going to keep ancient Egypt going and Horus himself is going, represents the awareness. Our ancient ancestors were constantly calling for us to be aware, to fight, to look in the, at the monster in the eye and acknowledge that it is there and not to go back and say no, it doesn't exist whatsoever. In speaking of ancient Egypt, you reminded me of uh, Ani, uh, who had a very important papyrus. We talked about that in my African Middle East class. Um, he paid a lot of money to, to have his own Book of the Dead for himself and his wife. And I was thinking about how when an Egyptian died, they had to fight monsters on their way to, let's say, a very lovely afterlife. Um, sort of dragon-like monsters, you know. And you reminded me of something else that I think is really important, and it is the creation of um, monsters uh, by misogynistic men. Um, and I would point out particularly, as you did, Medusa, uh, although some Greek authors tell the positive story. And I would also point out the White Witch in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in which he demonizes a Russian snow goddess. I would also point out um, uh, the original Snow Queen of Hans Christian Andersen, 
um, as being a, a creation of misogyny. And I do think that's important to understand. There was a feminist poet in the 70s, Robin Morgan, who wrote a poetry book called Monster, and it was about this sort of thing, uh, including a poem to a man she considered a monster who had not only one uh, woman uh, commit suicide while they were married, but two. Uh, and he's still considered a very famous English poet. So I do think those things are important when we think about monsters. Some people even say that Mary Shelley uh, really intended to write about the oppression of women when she wrote Frankenstein. Okay. Uh, let's, the, at the end of, of most of the hero stories, as Campbell frames it at least, there's a return. Oh, I'm sorry, I almost, I skipped the mentors, sorry. Uh, mentors, yeah, I know, yeah, we need the mentors. Uh, mentors are a key part of every hero story. So think of, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi kinds of folks. So the teacher who intervenes and moves the hero down, down the path. So are there other mentors that we should consider? Jump in? Yeah, jump in. Well, I think of Sidori. I really admire Sidori. Um, Sidori takes part in the Epic of Gilgamesh. She's a bartender. Uh, and she has her tavern at the edge of this world and at the entrance to the other world. And she advises Gilgamesh as to how he can perhaps, he fails, but how he can perhaps uh, find an herb that will uh, restore his buddy Enkidu to life. Um, and it makes me think of an essay I've always wanted a student to write and nobody ever has yet, <laughs> called The Cosmic Bartender. Um, another another uh, mentor, I think, is quite negative, but I always think of him too, Lloyd the Bartender in The Shining, if any of you have seen that film. He <laughs> teaches Jack Nicholson's character, uh, like shockingly, uh, what the real reality of this hotel that his family is staying in is all about. And um, I think of another bartender, uh, my favorite character ever on Star Trek, Whoopi Goldberg, who played a character called Guinan. She knew things not even the captain knew. She had lived for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, so she's she was one of my favorite mentors. Oh, and finally, has anybody <laughs> seen the others? with Nicole Kidman? Yes, yeah. Um, I believe her name is Mrs. Mills. She also does this teaching by way of shock. Uh, she's played by Fionnola Flanagan, and um, spoiler alert, uh, Nicole Kidman's character finds out that she's actually dead, as is her whole family. And Mrs. Mills uh, makes her aware of all that. Randy is just giving away yeah. senior thesis <laughs> papers. So when you go on and study <laughs> literature as a senior, master's degree students, these are just uh, waiting to be written right here. So okay. awesome. I, I, I want to continue. Um, the Others is awesome. Please watch it, even though he gave it away. It's Actually. amazing. Uh, okay, okay, he didn't give it away. <laughs> and um, the mentors that I have in mind, they're not bartenders, <laughs> but they're very interesting. By the way, I don't drink. Okay. <laughs> Well, maybe it's just a comment that, you know, Randy thinks of bartenders as mentors. I don't know. I don't know what that <laughs> means. But, you know. For me, uh, the mentors that I find very fascinating, they come from uh, American literature. 
and particularly sentimental literature. And I think of the American women who, uh, according to Julia Stein, who studied a, a lot of sentimental literature and literature in the 18th and the 19th century, and she made a note of this, that these American women, their hearts were breaking at the plight of American Indians, African Americans, and women themselves. And what they sought to do through their words was highlight the stories and the hardships of these women in particular so that the American public would start crying. So the authors themselves, the American female authors, wanted to be the mentors for the United States of America. And one case in point is the uh, first American bestseller was written by an American woman, Susanna Rawson, and the title of the book is uh, Charlotte Temple. And what is amazing about this book is the author has a role in here. The author talks directly to the audience. The author tells her audience to cry. The author says, oh, and now, this dashing, handsome American man has seduced this innocent British girl and has taken her across the Atlantic Ocean. Cry, mourn. Oh, and now this young, innocent girl is with child. Have you cried yet? If you have not, please cry even more and a whole lot more. Please teach your daughters. Let them guard themselves. Let them be very aware, again, this idea of be in reality. And it's so fascinating that somebody can very unabashedly step in and say, these are my intentions. Now, Julia Stern very brilliantly analyzes this and says, American women are trying to make America more compassionate because we're talking about the 18th century and that's more rationalistic. And these women are trying to say, no, have a heart through compassion. We can change politics. Randy, what you were talking about earlier, you don't like the politics that takes you back into oppression. Sentimental literature was about looking beyond, beyond this opp oppression, going, going beyond it, and changing America through tears and through loving one another. You've got on, on um, Benjamin Franklin who wants to do it by himself, who wants to self-reflect and be like Socrates and be like Jesus Christ and, and write down. Today, um, he made sure that he did not talk a lot. He was self-reflecting so that he could be the American self-made man. Nothing wrong with it, but the self. Is it always the self by itself recreating, recreating myself to be the best that I could be? Well, what about the other people all around me? It can be lonely, and American literature does uh, bear a mark of that loneliness, and it's very painful to go through. You get, like, for example, in the 20th century, uh, Winesburg, Ohio, with Sherwood Anderson. These people are by themselves. They're in a small town. You'd think they'd be forming friendships. They attempt to do so, but no. They go back home, and they're the loneliest people ever. It's attempting to go away, away from the mentor, 
It's attempting to do it by your, yourself and recreate yourself by yourself. You see it in African-American literature, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, where Frederick Douglass, scholars have said, uh, he tries to be Benjamin Franklin. He tries to uh, be by himself and, and be the representative man who's recreating himself, who's teaching himself, who guides uh, a bit of his fellow African-Americans to run away and they are caught. It's later on in his other autobiographies that you get to see that more people in his community, his grandmother, his mother, are actually helping him. There are other African Americans. But in the beginning, no, he wanted to represent himself as the self-made man, as another Benjamin uh, Franklin African American man. Fast forward. We're on to the 21st century and what we have in African-American uh, literature is a brilliant novel called Homegoing. How many of you have read it? Okay, awesome. Okay, so Tish has read it, and Yag Yasi in, um, in uh, the chapter called H, she's talking about this young man who is the grandson of another man called Kojo. Kojo is a lot like Frederick Douglass, has elements of his personality that are very much like Frederick Douglass. But H says this, and this is very interesting. When H gets out of being uh, wrongly imprisoned to work in the mines, his friends tell him, don't you have anybody in your life? And he's like, yeah, long ago I knew this woman who was phenomenal, and she means the world to me. And so they try to find out more information about him. And he says, no, I can live on my own. I've always lived on my own. I can continue to do so. And his friend's wife looks at him, and she's like, no, you cannot do so. And so she breaks the cycle. She breaks, actually, the curse of being by yourself. And they go out, and they find this woman. And... H and the love of his life do end up getting married. Can I ask, this is not one of our prepared questions, but it brings a question to mind that I've thought about when we've you know, had discussions about history, how history is so complicated and like reality is so complicated, it's hard for us as individuals to capture all the nuance and the, the many variables that are always interacting and, and so I always sort of wonder, you know, are, do he hero stories fail us in this way? Like is a he hero story, so simplified and so kind of step by step that when you apply hero stories to to history itself like we want our heroes we want edison you know to discover the light bulb even though there's like 80 people that actually helped make the light bulb right or you know etc there's always more story behind these great people um do we fall victim that we want these hero stories and they're they're too simple for us i troy i i don't think they're too simple um Literature is so honest. Literature captures the complex reality, at least from what I have read, because in, in Homegoing, the character H, his dream of being, or, or the, the community's dream of him being with somebody is realized 250 years after his great-grandmother is kidnapped and taken on a slave ship. So she herself... She bears a child, unfortunately, out of violence. Her daughter um, and her husband 
they're forced to be apart because he is lynched. Something is constantly separating the African-American community, and literature is very, very honestly shows that it takes so many years, hundreds of years, for the dream of toge togetherness to be materialized. Yeah, please. Yeah, you all are bringing up something for me I hadn't thought of until just now. But um, my generation, I'm 65, and my generation, we were all about collective heroes uh, as opposed to individuals. We thought of individual heroes. Uh, it was almost like capitalism versus socialism in a way. Um, we were not interested in the great man. We were interested in what a movement might do. And so our heroes were often um, groups of people as opposed to uh, a single individual. And I think maybe we need to think more about that yeah. in terms of collectives. Yeah. Yeah. Any other points on uh, back to mentors? Oh, Kelly, I did have you have one, yes, mentor, jump yes, one other mentor. Yes. You remind me of, the, of this one. Um, the Oracle and the Matrix. Okay. And she's not a bartender. <laughs> the Oracle in the Matrix, <laughs> not a bartender, but an amazing teacher, even if she's yeah. virtual. <laughs> what is it, virtual, right? Right. The whole point, yeah. Kelly, did you have anything to add? Well, I mean, it's hard to follow all that. <laughs> <laughs> that was also good. I mean, the notes that I wrote down for, for the mentors, you know, I, again, I, I think Sometimes it's very literal in what we're looking for, you know, when you think of the films and you think of the examples from literature, classical literature. Uh, but it also can be more providing the motivation or the inspiration. And I always like the stories where the hero he goes through this hero's journey and the obstacles and the challenges, but then the hero becomes the mentor. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it historically, of a lot of the things you were talking about, one of my favorite things to teach when I teach women in humanities is I love to teach the unit on women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. It's just very personal to me and I'm very inspired by it on a personal level, but I liked to teach my students about a woman named Emmeline Pankhurst, who not everyone knows is really the one who started the suffrage movement in England. Maybe you all know that and I'm saying that everyone already knows <laughs> this. But I like her story because she's she's not your typical sentimental woman. She's not a particularly compassionate woman in what she was advertising and trying to encourage women to do to fight for their rights. So she's very violent, and she encouraged violence and hunger strikes and blowing up mailboxes and all of that. And I showed my students last semester a film called Suffragette. Great movie. I loved that movie. Um, Meryl Streep plays... Emmeline Pankhurst in it, and it's really a bit role. It's about the women that she then inspired. So if you think of her journey as a hero's journey, and she has flaws, and she makes mistakes, and she's not admirable in, in a traditional way, but the way that she then inspired other women to go on to this journey, and you think of women later down the line, like Alice Paul in American Suffrage, I like those kinds of stories that don't end with this sort of as you were saying, you know, these expectations of step one, step two, step mm -hmm. three, we've checked them all off, now we're done and the journey is over. I like the story where it then continues into the next right. name or the next historical movement to inspire women, or not just women, but people into the future. Yeah, I love that hero becomes the mentor. And I think for all of us, right, to translate, the point for Campbell is to translate over into our own lives, 
you know, we have those people that come into our lives and sometimes we're the mentors for other people that come through. So you play, you know, both sides of the street on that one for sure. So I think, you know, to kind of bring us to that, this getting us toward the end of our time, but to talk about, you know, the return home. So many hero stories, the, the hero goes out in the world and has some discovery or captures some knowledge or thing and then returns it to the home community. And maybe there's some examples of that that we could talk through. I'll, I'll talk about Ethan Brand uh, by, um, and I want, I want to say that for Ethan Brand, he leaves home and he wants to find the unpardonable sin. And he leaves home for many, many years. What is the unpardonable sin? Some people in his town think it's even sinful to go looking for that kind of knowledge. This is the knowledge that only God, only a divine being should have. And when Ethan Brand comes back home, he's not home anymore. He's never, ever home again. The people in his town mock him. They say horrible things about him, so much so that uh, Ethan Brand, I just want to backtrack a little bit, had spent uh, his life looking at the fire, looking at the furnace, looking at the kiln. And when he returns, having this knowledge of the unpardonable sin, he says, I found it. It's in here. It is in here. And he gets, he gets mocked left and right. And the very next day, um, this man and his son discover the skeletal remains of Ethan Brand inside of the kiln, so he had died by suicide. He did not find that in returning home and gathering that knowledge, he did not find the home that we hope people would find. So there is an element in, in American literature, you know, that is rather tragic of people moving and, and not really coming back. I mentioned earlier Winesburg, o Ohio. People are, are in their houses, I wanna say, but they're not, they're not at home. They're at home, they're in their houses, isolated from one another. Um, I'm looking very quickly down what I have. Okay, so for Layla and Majnoon, uh, for Majnoon, the hero who fell in love very, very deeply, he actually does achieve a return home towards the end, and he achieves it by dying and by reuniting with his beloved at the very end. So it's within death that the purity of his love and the purity of his heart and soul connect him back and make him rest in peace. So this one ends positively. So you've got Arabic literature, African-American literature. Uh, Janie, the hero of their eyes, were watching God. This one ends also positively. She does leave her home. She does go on a journey. She meets other African-Americans. She works with them. She makes great connections, great friendships. Uh, there's something very important that goes on, and I won't reveal it, but when she does return home at the very end, she's inside of her house. She opens all the doors, all the windows, and she feels a sense of joy and peace come back to her. She's now 40 years old, and she has finally settled. So you've got the sense of the positive in the world, in death, and you have the sense of the extremely melancholic in certain American literature. Mm -hmm. 
isn't that the point, though? I think if, you know, with all these examples we're talking about with the journey and, and, and taking fictional or nonfiction and applying it to our own lives, and we say you can never really go home again because I think you want the hero's journey to be transformative. I think you want what was the point then of the ordeal? What was the point of the struggle if we end up right back where we started again? So yes, I think in a lot of the Hollywood examples or even classic literature, there's this you know formulaic pattern that a lot of these characters follow. But I think the overall point to it all was that it was supposed to change something, your point of view, your life. You're supposed to bring back some sort of boon of knowledge to humanity. They're, they're I don't think you're supposed to necessarily. You right. physically go home in these stories. You return to the point of origin, but you yourself should be transformed by it, as should the reader. You can't find out that you're born on Krypton and go to Metropolis and then just go back to Smallville and be mm -hmm. a farmer, right? Like that's right. Ruins the whole thing. I was thinking about some of my favorite films. Um, you don't take the last step. Um, one of them is The Woman in Black. If anybody has seen The Woman in Black, it doesn't end with a journey home. Uh, it does end <laughs> uh, with a man reunited with his family. Yeah. I'm going to try not to give spoiler alerts again. <laughs> um, the other one I love is Thelma and Louise. It was one of the only female on the road films, and it definitely does not have the final step of the journey home. Uh, and yet, like you were talking about, and you, it teaches further generations a lesson that they might not have known before they saw that film. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I think I think sometimes that's important sure. too. Sure, I mean some of the the journeys, you because of the way it ends. If it is a self-sacrifice kind of story, you're not going to go back home, right? Like, so if you think of like Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, spoiler alert, you know, he's not going to make it back home. Like that's the whole point, and so right. yeah. Um, let's we have just a couple minutes. I would thought we maybe we could open it up um, for questions, audience, or final thoughts from our panel members. I just want to mention one thing very quickly. The journey doesn't always take place on a road, even if that's in outer space. The journey to knowledge can take place within the confines of a house. Um, the others, again, is a, an example of that. The woman in black is pretty much an example of that. Um, so you really don't have to go anywhere uh, in order for that journey to happen. Right. I, I want to I respond to both. Um, I uh, love the Beatles tremendously, love George Harrison tremendously. There's a song by George Harrison uh, where he sings, you know, that without leaving your home, without leaving going outside of your doorstep, you can learn so much, you know. And of course, that's George Harrison's spiritual influence. And Kelly, you also, uh, as soon as you said, you know, the idea is to learn, you inspired me to think, to go back and think of these examples for Ethan Brand. I think what's going on with Ethan Brand is that we are being warned in the 19th century in, in America to listen that there are these scholars and there are these thinkers and that people are not listening to them. And the villagers in the story, when Ethan Brand returns home and they're mocking him, in a sense, the villagers are the American public and we are being warned, 
to listen, listen, somebody, somebody might have discovered something being away from home for 18 years. There's something that we need to listen to. So I think that's the message that I take away from it because I loved when you said it's all about the lesson. It's, it's not about just moving. And I had alluded to, uh, I referenced Zora Neale Hurston, the young African-American um, character here, Janie. Janie has to literally leave her home and has to go through several marriages to realize that she is not held back by her grandmother's, unfortunately, her grandmother's culture, which was a slave culture. And this is what uh, she wanted to hold Janie to. And she also has to be her own independent woman, okay? That she herself can make strong connections with people, but she on her own is very strong. Mm -hmm. So that's, these are the two lessons that they come back with. Any questions from the audience? Everyone's like ready to run for it. Well, or just, just want to go see right. Alien or the <laughs> right. other. Yeah, or so <laughs> just to close, almost every single thing that has been mentioned here, our library has on our shelves or online. Um, we have many of Campbell's works. And just as an advertisement, there's a very famous interview with Joseph Campbell by Bill Moyers from the early 80s or late 70s, and they talk about Star Wars as the hero's journey. Um, we have that online through our Hoopla streaming service. It's really fantastic. Um, graphic novels, fiction, um, films we have, so all of you can check those out. So how about just a quick round of applause for our panel members and their time. Thank you, guys. And thank you all for coming. Have a great day.